Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. This week's guest is one of my podcast heroes. Not that Kurt Anderson is a podcaster. He hosted the Peabody Award-winning public radio show Studio 360 for 20 years, but for me, it was something I listened to as a podcast. Kurt Anderson is one of the interviewers that I learned from when I started podcasting, and I hope it has made me better. Kurt is also the author of three novels, co-author with Alec Baldwin of another novel about He Who Will Not Be Named. As a publisher, Kurt Anderson co-founded the satirical magazine Spy in New York City in 1986. If I'd stayed in New York, I left two years before that, I would certainly have been a regular reader. Finally, as an author of nonfiction, Kurt's two most recent books are essential for understanding politics and the way the United States has veered into the confusing. I have been recommending Fantasyland to everyone I know since I read it. It recounts the history of the United States from the first settlers to the present, following the thread of people believing whatever they wanted to, even in the face of reality. His latest book, Evil Geniuses, explains how America has gone wrong, both politically and economically, since the 1970s and 1980s. Spoiler, it's not an accident that all this has happened, and it's not the fault of the boomers. Like several of our recent guests, Kurt lives in Brooklyn, New York. As long as this introduction is, it only scratches the surface of the many things our guest has done. We don't do politics on this show other than when we discuss things like music royalties and streaming, and Kurt is not here to discuss politics, but music. Kurt, thanks for joining us today. Would it be fair to call you a Renaissance man? Uh, I can't be the judge of that. Uh, it's a phrase I've heard before, but only if this were is a renaissance. D- does it qualify, right? I guess. Uh, anyway, I've done a lot of things. Yes, I have done a lot of things in my in my 40x years of adulthood. Yes, you're not a native New Yorker. You, was it Omaha, Nebraska, where you grew up? Exactly right. Yes. And then you went to New York in the 70s and discovered the city in the mess that it was in the 1970s. I bought low, as they say in finance. Yes. <laughs> So, in Evil Geniuses, there came a point where you wrote something and I said, wow, Doug and I have been talking about that for years. This is the first person I've seen who's noticed it. But first, I want you to talk about, you had an epiphany, I believe it was in 2007. Can you just briefly mention that? Yeah, I can. Uh, It was reading a New York Times story uh, when I was still reading a paper version of the New York Times every morning. And uh, there was a story about um, Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell, and mostly about Ian Schrager, who were back in the far day when I first came to New York, were the impresarios who created Studio 54, but then remained hospitality impresarios and had invented essentially the, the urban boutique hotel. And there was a picture of them and their staff at the uh, at the Royalton, which was the, uh, one of the uh, an early restaurant and 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 then hotel of, of this kind that they invented, the picture was from back in 1985, I believe. Uh, so it was 22 years old when I saw it, and so these stylish two dozen waiters and maitre d's and Schrager and Rubel standing in in a Manhattan street for their group portrait, and I thought, huh, they don't look any different than people in 2007 
look, really. I mean, virtually not at all in their grooming and their hairstyles in their cool looking clothes. That's weird. That's interesting. And and it sent me down this little rabbit hole of, of research to figure out a uh, is that just true of the way people dressed and groomed themselves? And B, had this ever happened before over a 22-year period? And 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 that led to this essay I wrote and published back then, back in 2011. Not then. It took me a few years of, of thinking about it and researching it. And, and, and I was just struck that this kind of stasis had happened across the board in what the academics call material culture that that uh, in in design and architecture and in, in, in product design cars music films all kinds of ways uh, this 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 queer and and certainly in the modern era which is to say the last hundred plus years it had never happened that over a twenty plus year period so little had changed and and and. And, and so that set me on that, uh, down that path. And, and then when I started writing uh, a little bit in fantasy land, but certainly in Evil Geniuses, I, I incorporated that whole understanding into this larger understanding of, of, of uh, how our culture has gone strange uh, in the last uh, few decades. How it's stagnated. And and so we want to talk about the music because on the one hand, people dress the same, they eat the same foods, and part of that's globalization. But Doug and I have said so many times, just music hasn't changed since like 1980-ish. The way I always try to explain it to people, because I've noticed this for a long time now, um, I, first of all, I would say in the 1970s, when I was a teenager, I would never listen to music from the 30s, 40 years previous. And the other example I use is one that you validated for me in the book, and that's the Shanana performance at Woodstock in 1969, where these college students dressed up as a bunch of 50s greasers and did a tribute to oldies. <laughs> um, one of the songs that they played, one of the songs that Shanana played was um, called uh, At the Hop by Danny and the Juniors, which was a hit in 1958, only 11 years beforehand. And that, to me, is amazing. I mean... 11 years isn't that big of a time difference, but by that time, it was understood that that music was old and in the way, and, and they goofed on it, and it was understood by everyone that, you know, that was old music. Yeah, well, and the thing about the Shanana and Woodstock, when I, and I look back at that and rewatch the movie, of course, and listen to the record, and then I actually, a few, a few years ago on, on my show, Studio 360, talked to the founders of Shanana about it. Uh, and, and what was striking to me is that, yes, 11 years old in the, in the case of that song uh, you referred to, but some of them were six years old and yet still crazily dated, ridiculous. Listen to that. Uh, and, and, and which is to say, and, and that is, among other things, a measure of how, how extreme and rapid the cultural change just in music uh, the, the 1960s were. But, yeah, it, it, it is... It is amazing, and and I and you know, of course, we are all. None of us are young, and so one one naturally tries to check oneself. Is this just because I'm like nostalgic for my own youth and things change so quickly? And, and and that was my first like, wait, 
I'm not. Is this just a sign of my own oldness and 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 fetishization of my own youth? But then I look at it and no, it really is true. Beyond that, beyond the fact that I'm an old guy who was 15 when I saw what's that movie for the first time and all that. No, this is historically odd. This this is a new thing, uh, and and yeah, and so then I spent some time exploring how and why that happened in, in, in music and otherwise. I mean, part of it is, and 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 Shanana at, at Woodstock is a good is a good uh, example of this. It was it was uh, sort of striking how quickly things had changed, but it was also then in its in its soothing quality. All this other kind of uh, nostalgia for the 50s and early 60s immediately came along, whether it was American Graffiti and the Broadway show and then the movie Grease and all these other Even things. Even Reagan so, himself is a sort of well, version of sure, that. Well, for sure, but it was this and it was this it was this like looking back just at this time right before the Vietnam War, right before all of the 60s changes that the Vietnam War uh, and, and, and antipathy for it was was, uh, you know, all, all of that change. It was looking r- right before into this, what this this word that is used for the 1860s and 1850s rather than the 1960s and 1950s, but it's the same, antebellum, right? Antebellum, we think of as the time before the Civil War, but the Latin phrase means before war. So so it's the same thing. And, 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 and uh uh, uh, yeah, and then we got stuck. It was, as I say, it was like you know we 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 you know the the record kept skipping, and we didn't we were too stoned or too whatever to stand up and change the back when we had styluses and vinyl records. Yeah, uh, to change the change the track, and and we and we got stuck, and and so it went from nostalgia to a stagnation. I mean, it was, uh, and they're they're not exactly the same, but they are certainly synergistic, shall we say. I I kind of feel that the the stagnation came in shortly after MTV arrived. You had punk in the mid to late 70s. You had the whole new romantic, the synthesizer stuff that came in the early 80s. And then MTV had to present a sort of lowest common denominator to the entire country. And you no longer had regional differences. New York was always very vibrant for music. But I would imagine Omaha, Nebraska didn't have the same you know, live music scene or even radio stations. And it's kind of like the the expansion of the media is what contributed to the simplification of things. I think you can actually see how this happened if you look at album-oriented rock and how it progressed. It was ev- invented to capture the 25 to 54-year-old male demo. Uh, and that's a 30-year span. So in order to capture all of those gentlemen... Um, you know, they would test records. Who, what are these younger guys like? What are these older guys like? And they just kept playing it. I mean, because obviously in order to appeal to older guys, you need to play the older music and to appeal to the younger, et cetera. So I think, um, you know, I think that's the sort of thing that sort of homogenized a lot of popular music. It, it didn't just happen in AOR. Uh, uh, eventually radio station formats began to consolidate and target. And so you see this, repetitiveness of, of music over and over again. Yes, but but the st- other the strange thing that happened for the stagnation and the unchangeability to take place was not just that they kept playing the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead, but, but that new act, Fish being an obvious example, or 
Oasis or Stone Roses or White Stripes or whatever, which were new nominally, younger nominally, but but essentially creating new, nominally new cover versions of what had been <laughs> done in the late 60s and 70s and so forth. And that's the strange thing, that why, why have we not since hip-hop and the various versions of techno and house and rave music and all that had a wholly new set of musics in 30 years? That's weird. Yeah, the technology's changed a lot. So you get more sampling, you get more auto-tune and processing and all that. But I have a son who's 30 years old. He turned me on to a, a band called Dark Side a few years ago. The guitarist who lives in Brooklyn, he did an episode with us. And they're influenced by Pink Floyd and Jerry Garcia, but they're also, one of the two members of the band is a DJ and an EDM guy. And yet their music doesn't sound like it's today. It sounds like it's somewhere between... It sounds like it's the soundtrack for a movie that's trying to not situate itself in time too much. And I love the band, and I love the one album they've done, but there is something of, why should we go any further? Why don't we just keep doing variations on what we know? Yeah, and, and, and you mentioned MTV, and there are these structural corporate reasons why this happened back in the day. But uh, also, the other big technological thing that allowed it to happen, of course, is the internet. I mean, in addition to cable television, which is to say now YouTube and, and, and Pandora and, and Spotify and everything else exists, which enables this kind of fixed backward gaze to happen. And like, uh, the, it, it's easy for all of us to to go down our, the, the rabbit holes of our choice to sort of just like, yeah, look at that, 1970. Oh, look at that, 1987. Oh, yeah, 1994. And and rather than <laughs> creating something new, as as of course was done to a fairly well in the 1960s and 70s. If you look at classical music, you've got your Baroque period, and then you've got the classical period, and that's a few decades, and then Romanticism, late Romanticism, Modernism, and some of them are 50 years, some of them are 30 years, but there are definitely changes. They're incremental, but they're noticeable changes. And what we're seeing, we've done a couple of episodes about progressive rock. And what I found interesting was to discover that there is a very vibrant progressive rock scene out there that's doing essentially what the bands of the 70s were, although a lot of them are more heavy metal. There's a kind of metal progressive. But that there is this filiation, this lineage that seems to be unbroken and stuck someplace, like someone ran out of gas and didn't want to go any further. That reminds me of the band um, Greta Van Fleet, uh, who it, it sounds like they grew up on an island with nothing but Led Zeppelin records, and their repertoire consists of nothing but a musical vocabulary that is made up entirely of Led Zeppelin sounds. So they they know <laughs> their stuff sounds like Led Zeppelin, but it's not Led Zeppelin. It's old, but it's it's new. Well, and, and the thing is, what is interesting to me about this, a thing that's interesting to me about this, is that what is, what, you know, can be called nostalgia, at a certain point 30 years ago, ceased to even register in those who enjoyed it, were fans of it, as nostalgia. It no longer seems like something of the past. It's just this thing I like, and, and there are new new, quote-unquote, versions of it coming along, as as you're saying. 
that, that don't even register as, oh, I am listening to the parents, the music of my parents or my grandparents. It's just, it's, it's, it's the thing I like. And, uh, and, and, and again, if it were just music, then we could go, oh, it's just music, but it ain't just music. It's, 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 it's graphic design, it's films, it's, it's, it's the whole, it's architecture, it's the whole realm of culture. I do have to take umbrage with one thing that you point out. You say, every era became a nostalgic fetish object. During the 1970s, fans of the Grateful Dead began bathing in nostalgia for the late 60s. It wasn't nostalgia. It's that we want to hear these great recordings that, of concerts that only happened once. Yes, there's a certain nostalgia for hanging out in the parking lot and all that. But me being a card-carrying deadhead, former <laughs> tape trader, it's it's wanting... it's. It's wanting to have that moment that you may never have heard, a show that you may or may not have attended. I mean, I agree that now with Dead and Company or whatever they're called, and they're kind of just like, they're the best Grateful Dead tribute band ever. Just like there's this really great Rolling Stones tribute band out there that looks exactly like the original guys, just older. Yeah. No, and I have no problem per se with any of that. It's not as though... You're a failure for being a deadhead in, in 2000. It's, it's, I'm not saying that at all. I really am not because I like I live in an old house. It's it's no different, really. But but why is there nothing new? Why is the way the dead was mind blowingly new in 1967? Uh, why why is there not a mind blowingly new thing after thing after thing coming along in the aughts and the tens and the, now the twenties and, and, and it ain't happening. And, and that's the strange thing. And that's, I think the problematic thing is, is, is that uh, there, there, there's nothing wrong with liking what was extraordinary or remarkable in one's youth or any other time. That's fine. But why isn't there, why, why, why isn't, why aren't we, why aren't the young people, uh, it, it's, a, it's a new version of what's the matter with kids these days, right? Back then, when Bye Bye Birdie, you know, what's the matter with kids these days, was, well, look, this new stuff, it's crazy, I, I don't get it. Now it's like, no, why aren't the kids doing some new stuff that's crazy that I don't get? Yeah, so we'll, we'll hear some new music and we'll say, oh, this sounds like that and this sounds like that. And we have these signposts and references that, that these bands are wearing on their sleeves, that the artists are, are visibly, uh, audibly, you know, t t t not copying, but quoting in many ways. Well, and, and, and quoting, and, and again, with uh, the artists are no doubt aware of the quotes and the homages and all that. But but the masses, the fans, not so much. It's just it's uh, you know so and 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 it's 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 odd. And of course, as you know, in, the, in my books, I talk about the other how this connects to other things that are indeed problematic. The, this this sense that eh, no, nothing ever changes. This kind of fatalism and and sense of oh, here we are stuck, and that's the way it is. Who cares when it's music? You know, it doesn't have any ill effects really maybe there but when it when it is also extends to politics economics the whole realm of life itself then it can get problematic and 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 because it it reinforces this sense that yeah no nothing really ever changes what are you going to do <laughs> i have a theory do you remember where you were on the night of july 13 1977 
was that maybe the disco sucks uh, thing or what? <laughs> no, it was the blackout in oh, New yes. York. Oh, I do indeed. My my theory is that aliens caused that blackout <laughs> and did something to yeah. us. And just before the show, I was looking up on a site called setlist.fm to see who was performing in New York that night. If there would be some, you know, I, I know that there was some band at CBGB that was in the movie about CBGB. But th that to me... So this was the year I was 18, right? 1977. And that was one of these defining moments of that entire summer, the summer of Sam, you know, the heat wave we had and all of that. And it was like that, that this was a, it, it was, it was a watershed that something happened that changed that night. And maybe it was aliens. Yeah. Well, and then of course, you know, certainly in the last four years in the United States, of course, people have talked a lot semi-seriously joking, but not, Necessarily, like what what ET uh, or otherwise uh, uh, beings have created the simulation that's gone off the rails in which we now find ourselves with with pick your thing, Donald Trump, wizard right? people, Brexit, yes. wizard people, whatever. Yeah, indeed. So maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe it didn't happen in 2016. Maybe it happened in 1977. Sure. Yeah. Worth pointing out that we're recording this on Monday the 4th, so this is the day after we heard about the phone call, and this uh, this episode will be published on the 20th on Inauguration Day. And so we have 16 days ahead of us where anything can happen, anything, literally. Yeah, no, the phone call, man, oh man. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is amazing, and I, actually, speaking of those things, I, I uh, because uh, I, 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 it is I do what I do. I, I have created uh, a thing that will, by the time this comes out, will have been released, which is to say next week, the week of the 11th and 12th. This, uh, uh, a, a, a yet another, I've done one before that you mentioned, You Can't Spell America Without Me, this parody of, of Donald Trump. I've done another one, a finale one, a, a, a farewell guy, good riddance, <laughs> one that Donald, that uh, Alec, that Alec Baldwin has just recorded and will be released as a 45-minute farewell address called Hasta la Vista America <laughs> um, uh, that comes out next week. So, uh, the, and, and when this phone call, which as you can imagine, I spent a lot of time uh, listening to and, and reading the transcript of the last 48 hours, uh, it made me think like, wow, the, 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 the distinction between this parody, this yet final parody that I've just created, and this hour long, not much longer than the parody that we were just about to put out, uh, the, 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 trying to distinguish between the fiction and the, and the reality becomes very, very tricky indeed. It would be hard being in the writer's room of a TV series and coming up with some of the ideas of what's really happening. Well, oh, exactly. And, and, and again, that's the thing that, speaking of your aliens, people talk about the writer's room yeah. out there that is going on, <laughs> uh, that, is, that is in this simulation, so goes the imagination that we find ourselves. There, there's another point that you mentioned in your book. A single two-year period in the mid-70s seems like a hinge moment in this regard. The Vietnam War ended, the oldest baby boomers turned 30, the youngest baby boomers entered puberty, Rolling Stone moved from a hippie dump in San Francisco to a fancy establishment building in Midtown Manhattan, the new president was a Dylan fan, Saturday Night Live went on the air, the Apple II was invented, and Microsoft was founded. And I, I just kind of feel that we can go back 
back in any decade and find a few years where a lot of things happened, but not as many as that in such a short time. Mm. Well, and indeed, your 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 nineteen seventy seven moment was the end moment. Yep. The, the 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 boom or or click or whatever yeah. happened. Exactly. No, and and uh, it is it is yes, it is remarkable. And and one has to keep saying, wait, is that just because I was in your case eighteen or I was twenty? To or whatever I was, uh, but it's it's not just that. It is that, and that's why we we fifty or forty five years later are going around like what the hell why what who? Huh? But it, it it isn't just that. It's it's actually objectively uh, different than 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 anything we've seen since. You know, we might be in that same kind of period because I've been reflecting recently how in the early 1970s, I remember we would have the maybe CBS Evening News on when eating dinner and we'd hear the body count from Vietnam. And every evening when I put on the BBC News here, it's like there were 54,000 cases and 927 people died after having a positive test in the last 28 days. And and there's somehow this weight of this death that's weighing on us. I don't want to get lugubrious here, but it could be a similar sort of pivot moment that maybe in the after when people are vaccinated, when we've got control of these diseases, maybe we will be able to come up with some new change like what happened back then. Well, I, you know, I am hopeful about those kinds of things, that this, the, 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 the extremism of this moment of, 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 of the deaths piling up. No, absolutely. And I'm working, another small project I'm working on is this podcast, six episode podcast history of Nixon's Vietnam. So I'm spending a lot of time in, 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 in the early 70s uh, and, 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 uh, and how at a certain point, say May of 1970, when people said, what the fuck is going on with this re-enlargement of the war into Cambodia and so forth and then killing people at Kent State and all the rest, that there were these moments when, yeah, okay, we've gotten used to it, but then it's like, no, we're not used to it anymore. And, and that is indeed, perhaps, maybe in the after, as you say, let's let's re, let's re, re-rendezvous in a year or two or three and, and go and see like, wow, th- that was the moment. This 2020 thing was as, as a, a much of a radical hinge moment as 1940. 14, 1917, uh, 1968. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it was. And maybe as those times led, as you said on your other podcast the other day, uh, uh, about how all changes uh, have are full of good and bad. Maybe there's some good that indeed will 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 come out of this one. Yeah, I'm just thinking back to those early days of high school. So I graduated high school in 1976. And the first couple of years, it was worrying about the draft. Are we going to be drafted? And one of my best friends, his brother went to Vietnam, and he came back, and he wasn't all there. And he got his copy of the Anarchist Cookbook, and eventually went to a kibbutz in Israel. And, you know, this was a period of intense stress for teenagers back then. And of course, that can extra- explain part of punk, not the British element of punk, but that can explain the New York downtown punk and the sort of Iggy Pop type stuff. That can also explain disco and this sort of, we want to live, you know, like after World War Two. Well, no, t- totally. And, and people are now saying, oh, wow, the Roaring Twenties, maybe that's what we're about to have. But of course, the, the difference between the younger baby boomers, like you and me, and I don't know how old you are, 
but I guess the same. There's a big difference because, you know, we didn't, you know, people just two years old, men just two years older than I am, got drafted. I didn't get drafted and nobody my age got drafted. And that's that's this big difference between old baby boomers born from 1946 to 1953, and then those of us from that also not being born in 54 or 58 or 60 rather than 47 or 49 or 51 when you really could go and die as people did uh no it's a huge difference and 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 of course whether it was punk and the the nihilism of punk and or the the gleefulness of other forms and cultural music and otherwise that happened when like Let's party, dudes. That was <laughs> was was enabled by we we well we we survived. We were lucky. We didn't go to Vietnam. We and here we are. And by the way, and here we are. We, we, when when there was still a, a more or less fair economy and all the rest that we could party hardy and 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 all the other things one did in the late nineteen seventies and eighties and beyond. All right, Kurt Anderson, last question. What music are you listening to these days? Oh, gosh. Uh, I listen to, uh, I mean, other than this and that, I mean, I, I, I listen to, I guess, in terms of, of things that grew out of the, that moment, uh, kind of uh, Eno-esque, Harold Budd, uh, lots of versions of uh, ambient, uh, I guess, but not just. I also listen to interesting new rock and roll occasionally That's some of my, my favorite music have you been checking out robert fripp's music for quiet moments series every week he releases a song on the streaming services and there's 36 of them so far they're all these sort of frippertronic ambient pieces that he's recorded oh, uh, no, they're, no, they're dandy no, no, yeah I, I i'll do it immediately and and as as my at my trough my my alexandrian library of uh, <laughs> spotify will allows me no that's great ah see now if you used apple music you could just subscribe to my playlist which i update every week when there's a new track well, then I'll do that. I'll do that. Nah, I'm, I'm agnostic. Won't. I'm platform agnostic. Okay. Well, no, Apple Music you have to pay for, whereas Spotify has a free tier. Oh, I, I, but, but, but I pay for I pay for Spotify just as I can now. Uh, right. Depending on how much I want to pay for Apple Music, pay for that. Okay. See, that's another discussion to have in the future. The whole fact that artists could actually make money in the past, and now that they're struggling. We spoke to someone a few weeks ago who we were talking about a book you wrote about William Burroughs, but he also knows a lot about copyright and all that. And I heard, I heard that. Show. We're almost we're, we're almost looking at a period when a lot of musicians will no longer be able to practice, not just because of the pandemic, but because they simply can't afford to. That you can't make a living anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well. And and. You know, or journalists or writers of various kinds. I was going to say, actually, the reason, one of the reasons I, I will listen to your music and listen to various, you know, versions of of of, of all kinds of, you know, descendants is as a writer, 
I can't listen to words while I work. Yeah. So I, 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 whether it's classical or electronic or whatever, I, I can't have words going to my head while I'm trying to create words. Yeah, I was very sad to hear that Harold Budd passed away recently. Yeah, but he, he lived a long life. He did. I, mean, I don't know. I, I, yes, sure. And all the, you know, yes. But when somebody gets into their 80s, like, you know, yeah. he got into your 80s. <laughs> You know? Yet, yet uh, Keith yeah. Richards just had another birthday. How does he stay alive? Yeah. Well, <laughs> by, by living healthily. You yeah. Know. Okay. Kurt Anderson, thank you very much. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. A whole bunch of links in the show notes to your website, to all the myriad things you've done. And I look forward to the next book. Uh, well, thank you. Me too. Uh, but now I have to write it. And, and it's, it's, it's so wonderful to be between books when you're not even working on one. You just did one, worked out okay. This is the... Speaking of roaring 20s pleasure or whatever, it's like, wow, these months of I'm not I'm not uh, stuck trying to push the next one out yet. Okay, thanks. Thank you. We want to thank our Patreon patrons for uh, making our podcast possible. If you'd like to become one of those kinds of people, head over to patreon.com slash the next track. We'll take some couch coin if you've got any to spare. It would be great. Thank you very much. Kirk, what is your next track? This week, I'm picking an album that I've been listening to regularly on Apple Music. We've mentioned in the past the record label ECM, mostly jazz and some classical. And I've long been a fan of their style of jazz, which a lot of it's ambient, a lot of it's you know, mellow jazz, and I think our guest would probably enjoy this type of music as well. Every once in a while, when I don't know what to listen to and I want something laid back, I'll just type ECM into the search in Apple's music app, and it offers to look at the ECM category. Now, category is a term that Apple Music uses for genres now, so ECM is it, its own genre. And I came across a record called Blue Macombs. It's an album by Anwar Brahem, recorded in 2017, released in 2017. A Maqam, M-A-Q-A-M, refers here, according to Wikipedia, to Arabic melodic art, but also to Iraqi Maqam, as practiced by master oud player Munir Bashir. Now, here we go. I'm totally out of my element. I don't know any of this. I think it's a sort of a modal type thing. All I know is I've played this record about a half a dozen times. It's 76 minutes long. It's quite long. And what I find really interesting is, you know, we're talking about how music hasn't changed. And it's the late 70s, early 80s that gave birth to world music, where you've got this combination of traditional instruments from non-Western backgrounds. And here, the oud player is playing with jazz musicians, Dave Holland, Jack DeJohnette, and Django Bates. You know, the first two are like they played with Miles Davis. So there's a, a continuity here of jazz that's blended with this oud, which is a sort of lute-type music. Lovely stuff. Long tracks. Some of them are nine, ten minutes long. Not a lot of albums give me the feeling that they were that their songs were composed in a way to flow the way this does. And you'll get from something that's kind of busy to something that's really mellow. And but it's all laid back. So Blue Macombs Anwar Brahim. Link in the show notes if you don't know how to spell it and don't want to look it up. Doug, what about you? When I was a teenager, uh, I played music with uh, a pair of brothers who played guitar and drums, and I played bass. And so we were really into power trios. We loved Cream and The Who and Mountain and bands like that, including the James Gang. And I think we probably did a cover of Funk 49 or Walk Away at some point or another. Uh, in case you didn't know, James, the James Gang is where Joe Walsh 
became famous, and he left the James Gang to do a solo career, and later he joined the Eagles. Um, the James Gang continued and hired another guitar player. They were never, in my opinion, I thought, as good as they were with Joe Walsh, but the guitar player they hired is a guy named Tommy Bolin, who was actually quite a well-known and very good guitar player, did a lot of solo stuff and played with Deep Purple at one point. Uh, I saw Deep Purple with Tommy Bolin as the guitar player. Took over for Richie Blackmore. Anyway, the first album the James Gang puts out with Tommy Bolin is called Miami. And I used to see this album in the record racks all the time, but I never wanted to pick it up because it had a pink flamingo on it. And I thought, a pink flamingo isn't exactly like Power Trio. So I completely ignored the record until about two weeks ago when I encountered it on Apple Music. And it is one of the best things I've ever heard in my life. It is, um, it's, it's better than the James Gang with Joe Walsh. It's just incredible. Uh, Tommy Bolin really does a fantastic job uh, taking over the the ethos that the James Gang had, which was this great, you know, funky uh, rock and power trio sound. Uh, and so I, I highly encourage you to give this one a listen. I, I put it off for years, and it's it's really very good. The James Gang, Miami, is my next track. This was episode number 201 of the next track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.